Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the ad that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times, 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, 2 times, and if you're completely insane, 3 times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature. That's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you, but the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, what's in that Davison main water bottle? It's Andy Greenwald! Wow, what a humbling moment <laughs> for the star of Better Call Saul. I, I, I don't know, are we just going right into that show? No, I, mean, I we feel can like just, it's hard to go we, back from... We, we, can, we can do Saul, we can talk about all sorts of things. It's a packed show today, Greenwald. We have a couple of guests... Yeah. which is pretty exciting stuff. On this show today, we have uh, Josh Phelps, who works with uh, Chef Jose Andres at the World Central Kitchen. And he came on. He's a, a pod listener, so it was really cool to have him on. And he came on to talk to us a little bit about, about that organization's mission during these really trying times. It was really cool to talk to him. And we also have an interview today with uh, one of the stars of Ozark, Laura Linney, who I talked to... Uh, the other day, I wish people and it could was see really Chris's awesome. face. I wish people could see Chris's face. It is the same face that my younger daughter makes when Paw Patrol starts, where she just <laughs> knows that all is right with the world for the yeah. next 21 minutes. It was great because like, we were having some connectivity issues just getting Laura on the phone uh, online. So we decided to do it over a video chat. And it was just like all of a sudden, Laura Linney was on my laptop. Just being like, what's up? Let's talk. Uh, so she was great. We talked about Ozark Season 3, and there are some spoilers in there. So if you haven't finished Ozark Season 3, you can check that out. But I just wanted to chop it up. Just do a post-Passover hang with my guy. You know what I mean? Let's just let's just hey, chat a little bit. Some of us have the matzo ball still bubbling on the stove. It's night two. Oh, right. How many nights does that go? I mean, in our current world, I'm going yeah. to keep rocking this. At least I'm going to keep rocking the wine consumption, the Seder yes. levels of wine for at least another week or two. And if Elijah comes, you know, hey, I think we could all use the company. Um, no, uh, we are doing a second night because, you know, there's just the, the, the Zoom Seders. Oh, you right. Wanna, you you kind of want to break it up because you don't want all right. the family at once, which is actually not a bad, bad thing about it. All right. So, so what, where are we starting? We, got, we can spin the great wheel of culture. We've both been enjoying some stuff. We've been yeah. making some surprising choices. Um, dealer's choice. You, you, you pick. Well, we could start with Saul. Um, okay. If you like. Uh, clearly, Chris started our conversation off with a bang by referring to the moment when Jimmy McGill, now known as Saul Goodman, uh, 
takes a long, <laughs> long swallow from a uh, bottle filled with yeah, his water own bottle. heated urine. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it was, I think it's just normal temperature urine. It's, no, no, it's desert temp. I meant that it definitely <laughs> desert was. Desert temp urine. Yeah. You know. I, I, I'm really personally, I've seen a couple of um, uh, Castaway movies, you know, uh, a couple of Stranded on a mm. Boat movies. But I'm still kind of unclear about like the nutritional value of one's own fluids in that regard. I mean, I, I think low, but I guess the assumption is that there's some, even though that's that, that there's some uh, water content, right? Yeah, right, sure, sure. In there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess we'll see how that works out for him. Maybe it's going to be a habit. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> he's didn't like, show this that is my on thing Breaking now. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, this was a big episode. This was a spectacularly directed episode by Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it it's, was thrilling to see so many of the New Mexican desert vistas that I now know really well and secretly the ones that are just behind the studio, which we shared yeah. with Better Call Saul. Um, but very impressed with the entire episode. But I did have a question, mm-hmm. and it's a sincere question, and I wanted you to get your take on it, which is to say Mike Ehrmantraut is essentially Superman. Yes. Right, he and- is the most unstoppable force, one He's of the most unstoppable forces ever on television. Yeah, he took out seven cartel dudes with a rifle at distance mm-hmm. in this episode. He seems generally untroubled by a thirty-mile trek through the desert, <laughs> and always knows exactly what to do and how to do it. And so, this was the first episode where I kind of bumped on that a little bit. Like it, right? made me feel a little less engaged because he is so stupendous. But the more I thought about that, the more I then remembered that the outcome of these characters' time in the desert is simply not in doubt. This is one of the things that is built in to the fact that this is a prequel show. We know mm-hmm. they survive, and we know what happens to... Well, we know what happens to Mike anyway, and we know a lot of the next few years for Saul as well. Knowing that, does it earn the omnipotence of Mike a little bit more because it doesn't waste time suggesting that he's somehow fallible to a degree that would be out of character for who he's become. Or is that just me talking myself into something that I'm naturally bumping on in a dramatic series? I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. It's not even a critique as much as it seems to be just like, I'm pointing this out. I don't remember watching Breaking Bad and thinking that Mike is the kind of guy who could take out an entire cartel hit squad in the desert right. with a sniper rifle. That was At never something. Whatever. Yeah, right. And it doesn't help that Jonathan Banks is obviously older and better call Saul than he was when he was making Breaking Bad. Um, but I, I think what you're getting at, honestly, is is a larger kind of uh, uh, interesting point about that episode, which was for as masterful as it was, it almost felt a little bit low stakes, even though the stakes were higher than they'd ever been. And we're supposed to be introducing Jimmy to this concept of the extreme violence Mm -hmm. of the world that he's really diving into. Uh, Because we do know what the fates are for these characters, I guess I always assumed something like this would happen. I always Mm -hmm. assumed that he would be introduced to this kind of this kind of activity. So yeah, I kind of see your point. I see why you would be bumping up against it. I think as an experience 
For me, the more harrowing moments are obviously Kim making the decision to introduce herself to Lalo. Yeah, that that's what gave, as it always does, it's the Kim role that gives the show its shot of uncertainty and stakes and danger. That was an incredibly satisfying scene. You know, I, I think just overall, it's just a it's just a beautiful exercise and set piece. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that some of the commentary that I've seen bubbling up after the episode aired, um, this actually came from Alan Sevenwall, and I agree with it, is that um, he, I think the way he phrased it was, Breaking Bad was a better story, but mm-hmm. Better Call Saul has proved that Gilligan and Peter Gould and everyone else involved have become masterful storytellers yeah better storytellers necessarily so and certainly better filmmakers i would say yeah for certainly better filmmakers over the course of the over the of the two runs um do you get are you do you end better call saul episodes and think to yourself oh what's going to happen next week or are you still sort of in the present in the moment with it and just enjoying it week to week like have you gotten it all like how are they going to fit together these pieces and and how do they, you know, like, no. No, I'm like blissfully unmotivated to do that. I'm just happier that there's a new one to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. I mean, I can't wait. So there's uh, two more episodes of Better Call Saul. I kind of want to ask you a little bit because uh, Better Call Saul obviously wasn't the only show that aired this week that had a desert episode. It wasn't the only show they aired on uh, Mondays. And I wanted to ask you, like watching Bagman, because Andy's, uh, this past episode of Briar Patch featured a long trek through the desert with two people who were yeah. looking for salvation of some kind. And it was just an incredible two-hander, that second half of the episode with Jay and Rosario and Briar Patch. I, if people haven't checked it out yet, we don't have to like spoil spoil it, but I highly recommend they, they watch it because it functions. It's just such a, it's probably my favorite episode of the season, I think. Um, and I'm not just because I got to see some of it get shot, which was pretty amazing to see it finally on screen. But I was wondering if watching Bagman, you also were like, Oh yeah, I know. I know. Like the kind of stuff they had to sort of grapple with being out there with the elements and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I first of all, it is incredibly funny that we ended up on the same night. Not only just because what are the odds of that for the coincidence, but also that you know I, I've talked a couple times in this podcast about running into Melissa Bernstein, the executive producer mm-hmm. of Better Call Saul, who directed last week's episode, and her telling me all about this big episode that Vince had done, not realizing that it was two people walking in the desert. Uh, that originally we were on Thursday nights, that originally we were one week out of sync with this episode. And for all the different things for after, that had to align for us to be an hour apart on television, it was pretty funny and pretty cool. Um, I don't think we were in the same locations. It seemed like they went a little bit further out, but I did recognize a road that's right by the studio. Okay. Um, and a couple a couple little details like that. I mean, the main thing that I saw and that I was both you know incredibly admiring of and also jealous of was they had so much more time you know um there are beautiful beautiful composed shots not just of uh jimmy when the two twins get out of the car and opposite sides sides of his head but just you know top down shots just a a whole assortment of looks from cameras and setups certainly in that beautifully staged gun battle which is from saul's perspective but also accounts for all these different moving pieces they just had many days to do it, you know, and mm-hmm. my memories of being in the desert are super fun. We had an amazing time. I think this is our best episode. And I think Arkasha Stevenson, who directed the episode, who I wish we could have had on the podcast this week, is a, is a superstar and a, a brilliant, brilliant. Um, and she she directed some Channel Zero. 
She directed a season of Channel Zero. She directed okay. an episode of Legion uh, and then was so uh, gracious to come and play with us in the desert and really took to it. But we basically had two or three days max. Um, the biggest day was a day of Jay and Rosario handcuffed together walking and having long conversations. And that day started at probably 10 a.m. of them in the, in the sun. And it is as hot as it looks and dusty and windy. And then we went into a night shoot on the same day of them digging their own grave at gunpoint, which Chris knows, and even if no one else ever knows, it's fine with me, is that whole scene is a tribute to one of our favorite James Crumley novels, Border Snakes. Yeah. Um, and we were on this uh, mesa out behind the studio, again, the same studio that Better Call, we share with Better Call Saul. And among other things out there on the mesa, there's also, you know, there's some like, housing developments out there and there's a school and but there's also a like amphitheater an outdoor amphitheater and the night we had jay and rosario and i want to repeat this again standing in a grave <laughs> at like 10 p.m and i think rosario and i had just returned from toronto um kiss was playing their farewell concert in albuquerque at the amphitheater are you serious? <laughs> so a lot of the footage of them being held at gunpoint in this very tense moment, digging their grave, was naturally scored in the moment to the plangent guitar chords of Beth. Wow. Or like, like looming out over the desert. It was so loud and it was so awful for our sound guy that, you know, thank God Jay and Rosario are who they are because they ultimately thought it was really funny. And... A bunch more than more than five people suggested we just try to license those songs, and I was like, we don't have that kind of budget. Um, <laughs> but they were yeah, they're great sports about it, and I think that I, I said this on Instagram that Cat uh, Colbert, who plays Harley, who's the guy who's holding them at gunpoint, uh, mm -hmm. is Jay Ferguson's best friend, and just happened to cast him, <laughs> and just ran like it wasn't because Jay told me to; it's because he was suggested for the part. I thought he was great. They were best friends in high school, and. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were high school buddies, the two of them and Sarah Gilbert. And so for them to play people who hated each other was a treat. And they had a really good time doing it. But yeah, yeah anyway. Yeah, was it, hanging it, out when we did the podcast with Jay from the set. Oh, that's so right. So if you, if you guys go back in the archives, you can, and if you listen to the Jay Ferguson pod, it's us recording. The date was like before you guys went out to the desert or after? Uh, I think it was before. Before. So we were just, I was there the day that they're shooting the scenes between Clyde and the senator in uh in a in felicity's apartment correct yeah. yeah yeah and uh you know just basically the the difference being and, and again not to compare the episodes whatsoever but you asked what i saw i mean again there's there's filmmaking their storytelling is clearly on its own level and i don't even mean to presume otherwise but i do see money and time that makes me yeah. envious no and i mean like i think that that was one of the coolest things about being on set for briar patch was just the actual experience of something like that scene I'm referring to between the senator and Clyde um, and a couple other characters in the, in the scene is just how painstaking it is to assemble what would seem to viewers to be the most basic scenes, like a conversation mm -hmm. in an interior room that's in a controlled environment and you can control the lighting and all of that, but just getting all the, all the different takes, all the different angles. And even while you were shooting indoors, I think you had to turn the power off at one point because of a, a lightning storm. Yeah, there's lightning delays, which just kills you. And so you, you think about, and 
you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of in the episode is Rosario has a really emotional scene and I just think she's brilliant. And I mean, she's always brilliant, but it's one of her, if not her best moment on the show. It's this moment where she realizes her own complicity in her sister's death. You look at it and, you know, we had three takes, I think, to mm-hmm. choose from. And she brings it every time, but we had three takes. And, you know, the other thing about this episode, it's out there now and I hope people enjoy it. But um, friend of the podcast, Tim Simons, shows up and is just a great friend of ours and a wonderful guy and so brilliant. We're so grateful to him. Um, I love his character. I love his performance. He was there for one day and we had one day on this weird, beautiful set that our locations guy and our production designer, Richard found that was like this abandoned drive-in movie theater slash summer camp slash bowling alley. that was just literally falling apart on the edge of the highway. And we just had one day and we had one day with Tim and we had one day with a camel named Skittles, you know, and, neither, <laughs> and unfortunately neither was more important than the other. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I hope people check it out. If, if anyone, if people ask me about the show uh, in the future, like this is the one that I would hold up probably is the one that kind of got what we were wanted most. Yeah, it's an like, incredible episode. Pushing the surreality, pushing the f- humor, pushing the emotion, pushing the strangeness, pushing, pushing, just pushing all of it. Um, I want to get to our interview with Josh Phelps soon, but I thought we could chat a little bit about some of the other stuff we've been watching this week. I like last night. I I did actually. It was so. It was kind of surreal. My wife and I actually watched TV. Like we sat in the living room and watched TV like in time with because we watched Survivor and then we watched the Modern Family series finale. Oh, yeah. Survivor, I let Riley McAtee handle on the pot of spoken, but Modern Family was actually um, you know, quite moving in places. There's a couple of scenes in the episode. I don't know if you plan on watching it. You I think you watched the first like early, early in Modern Family, but you probably haven't watched it in a while. I haven't kept up. How's the family? They're they're still kicking. Uh, there was no major losses in this episode, which I think some people had speculated that maybe this this season, this series would end with Jay passing away, which I think would have been not Oof. quite tonally in step with where the show had been going. Um, yeah. It is a sitcom. It's not it's not Bagman, but there was a couple of moments where you could tell that the uh, the actors were obviously like sincerely like crying in scenes that they were doing, yeah. like they were like sincerely going to miss each other. And, you know, you got to wonder with the exception of Grey's and I obviously like the Law and Order shows, if we'll ever see a sitcom that goes like 11 years again. I mean, I'm sure I'll be proven wrong and that there's like some CBS show that's on season nine anyway. But uh, yeah, watching that, I remember when that show premiered and kind of like it was this huge sensation and it's Emmys. It had like the Emmys on lock for a long time. Five year streak, I think. Yeah. And best comedy. But I would say that there's like a real strong prime run of this show where not only is it just like very enjoyable as like a nightlight watch, but they do some really nice stuff with uh, narrative complexity with like how you intertwine A, B, and C plots. There are some folks were talking about this today on on the Watches Facebook group, and I, I was going to jump in because there there are a bunch of episodes that are really formally creative, and like it's just one of those weird things where you just have these these strange characters in your life for like 10 years. And then, and, and it was, it was odd to kind of like watch the, the goodbye. Also, you know, even when it was maybe not the hippest or coolest thing to be watching mm-hmm. anymore on TV, it had a murderer's row of writers going through its offices, you know, and there were, it, it almost served as like a, I don't know whether you'd want to call it like a finishing school or maybe more like a wonderful year, like like a a wonderful fellowship at Yaddo for people, you know, (laughs) like the way to like novelists get the opportunity to go like be taken care of and fed and paid to work on their art. Because whenever there would be a beloved show, whether it was a, you know, 
relatively uh, critically adored or cult show like Community or a show of more a little bit more success like Arrested Development or even something like The Office, sure. when those shows would end, recognizable names from those staffs might filter into the modern family room. And, and some of them stayed longer yeah. than others, and some of them remained, you know, made made bigger impacts than others. But it's kind of amazing. And I guess, hold on, let me take a step back and reframe that. I guess it's not amazing when you have an money printing Emmy machine <laughs> at a major network uh, sure. that they're able to attract a lot of talents and keep it. That's just how it works. But it is a testament to the fact that even though the way we cover things has changed so so significantly over the last 10 years, that this podcast isn't checking for Modern Family. I don't know if you know other websites or we're, we're recapping it or whatever it is that we're doing these days on the internet. But in terms of the, the standard that the show held itself to and that the fans demanded of it, it was incredibly high throughout. Every time I checked back into it, it was firing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, it, you know, that, 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 I, I think it, it basically suffered from like the same thing that all family based sitcoms eventually suffer from if they're lucky enough to go on for as long as Modern Family did, which was the kids got older. And once the kids get older, I mean, all the characters got older, obviously. But when the kids kind of graduate out of like any needing of parenting, per se. Yeah. It sort of removes a little bit of like the thing that makes the the show kind of what it is. But they were always really inventive. I think that there's like a middle season, like from one to like four or five. You, it's it's you know it's hard to find like really bad episodes, and then like after that, like it goes up and down. But I always thought Eric Stone Street was one of the funniest guys on TV. So yeah, it was it was it was interesting to watch that kind of close, and then it was even more surreal because I think you obviously ABC probably planned like this huge send off. But they're all doing like Zoom chats with Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, right. I mean, they were probably imagining like, you know, when the cast of Cheers uh, went on The Tonight Show totally mm-hmm. hammered up to the last episode. <laughs> or I think Parks and Rec did that with uh, with Fallon yeah. or Seth Meyers. I don't remember. But um, it's a weird time to be promoting something or at least to be presenting something. Uh, you certainly can't expect. Or saying goodbye to something. Yeah. Yeah, at this particular moment. You know what we fired up last night? What? The Mark Marin stand-up special on Netflix. Oh, I watched that. It's yeah. excellent. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's so strange that that was recorded before all this happened because so much of the episode is about, like, end-of-the-world panic. It's incredible. I mean, I highly recommend this to anyone. Maybe people have already checked it out because it's been up for a minute. It's called End Times Fun. There's a moment in this comedy special recorded months ago where he's like, Something big is going to have to happen to basically shake the etch-a-sketch of this society if it's ever going to function again. Now, yeah. so far, I would say that this etch-a-sketch is as dysfunctional as ever, if not worse. But it is creepily prescient to watch the show. But also, you know, I have just, I listen to him constantly on his podcast. And I'm such yeah. a huge fan of him. As Do a, you listen to the first 10 minutes? Not so often. Okay. Sometimes, but so you'll generally, see who just, the interview guest is and skip to the to the actual chat. Almost always. I mean, I get enough okay. of a sampling to kind of check in where he is with his relationship with his ex girlfriend, the painter, and the cats and everything. But I generally just go in right in for the interviews because I just find them to be still among the very best out there. And then to watch this and be like, "Oh yeah, he's been a top tier stand up for thirty five years." It almost felt unfair, but it was. It was incredibly enjoyable. And actually, the reason both of us got on the same page to do it, and this is extremely narrow, uh, late period, this podcast dad core to say this, uh-huh. but my wife and I both individually, not at the same time, individually listened to Marin on Terry Gross. 
Oh, really? <laughs> and it's a great interview also because it happened right as this was this the current world was shattering and happening. And, uh, you know, there, there's something and, and I kind of feel like I touched on this a little bit. And we talked about why Ugly Delicious, I think, is just so phenomenal this mm-hmm. year. There's a very specific strain of pop culture engagement for me over the last decade is one of my favorite things, which is when people who are either brash or abrasive or very, very, very much one way begin to diversify and mellow and become more emotionally present in public. Hmm. It's like, I, I guess I call it therapy core. No, I mean, Bourdain much, certainly did that. It, it was Bourdain. That, I mean, yeah. that was the one for me. And then watching it happen with Dave Chang as well. And then watching it, you know, Marin's always been on Front Street with all of his anxieties and stuff. But basically as you hear him in the Terry Gross thing and you can kind of see it reflected in the comedy special, he's like, I used to be a hypochondriac. Now I know it's mm-hmm. something that I struggle with and here's how I'm approaching to it. And it's just, it's a kind of earned income maturity that if you, you know, if you invest you're a, in a You're a big fan stock, of growth, man. You love growth. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. No, because you remember those early Bourdain seasons where like there was, you know, that was when he was more the bad boy of of cooking and the bad boy of restaurants and he would just kind of come on leather jacket, earring, and be like, yeah. fuck this kind of chicken. Or if you yeah. make this food, like you should basically be like decertified as a restaurant. And then, you know, as the years go on, and I think as his mission became more clear to him, and it was such an important one, it's just sort of like trying to understand his fellow human through food and art. It obviously changed him so profoundly. Yeah, I find it to be one of the more engaging and emotionally affecting arcs of the last few decades, basically watching someone whose brand was a swaggering certainty go out into the world, get knocked on his ass and basically be like, all I come back with on these trips is questions and more questions yeah. and becoming more and more comfortable with that. It's a good segue to some food talk because we have uh, Josh Phelps who works for one of Tony Bourdain's great friends, uh, Jose Andres and his charity organization, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but you made a wild choice during this quarantine that you almost casually admitted to me, which was you said you were, and I can't even believe this, honestly, because I didn't think anyone did stuff like this anymore. You said that you and your dear wife started Top Chef. Chef started in season 17. Season 17, year 15 or 16 of the show. You tell me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I've watched every episode of the show as it aired from the beginning. Uh-huh. This is kind of like what Survivor is for you. Yes. I've been very plain that as a still, you know, early period swaggering Bourdain type, uh, I will never watch Survivor. <laughs> I, I have no questions. I don't, I'm not, I'm not expecting yet, you to watch Survivor. <laughs> and yet you came to me here. What brought this on and how are you feeling? Because this is a, this so, just returned on Bravo. It's the second all-star season. Uh, that the show has ever done. Yeah, and I talked about this a little bit with Juliet. Juliet and I talked on Bachelor Party this week a little bit about some of the TV that we were watching, and we talked a little bit about Top Chef, but Fetacy really was just imploring me and my wife to uh, check it out this season, mostly because of LA, because it was about Los Angeles, and that there was this episode, specifically the second episode, is dedicated to Jonathan Gold. And... You know, it's a competition show. It's 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 my kind of competition show where I think it's a little bit more about um, people's ability to play the game that is on the screen rather than any of the crap that happens off screen or in the margins. Like, there's not like a lot of house drama. There's not a lot of like, 
this person and like vilifying of people. They're all kind of like, I'm trying to win top chef, but like preserve a bit of my humanity in the process. But uh, so I, I mean, I, I'd always had this block where it was like, I just, without being able to taste the food that people are making, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to under get any kind of sensory excitement out of it. But over the last couple of years, I've obviously, I think I've mentioned really getting into the, obviously the Bon Appetit YouTube channel. Uh, I've, while I've been home on quarantine, I've been really enjoying the YouTube videos of uh, the chef J. Kenji Alt, who has been doing these kind of GoPro videos in his kitchen, but he's making like mac and cheese quesadillas or cacio pepe. And it's just like watching him go through the steps and even take time to like clear off, clean off his frying pan while something is still on the stove has just been strangely like educational and also soothing. So I thought like the time is right. And we checked it out, and I, you know, I don't think we can say enough about how good the second episode is, the Jonathan Gold episode. Really moved to tears multiple times by that, and also just like in general, the food seems like very, very top notch. Obviously, but I, I guess I kind of feel like I understand it now. Um, before I just was always like, you can say gremolata forty five times, I'm still not going to know what you're you're making. Um, but this time around, for whether it's because they're cooking in LA, because they're visiting Los Angeles restaurants, they're incorporating a lot of stuff around Los Angeles. And as I was kind of talking about Juliet, it just kind of makes me miss the city that I'm living in. That's a beautiful reason to watch the season. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I think that also you've, you've zeroed in on why I've always loved the show, which is that it's it, it, it's primarily about cooking as art and expression but also it never shies away from the kind of rote craftsmanship of it. I mean, there are the challenges where you have to, you know, uh, uh, shuck oysters or open clams, you know, and, or, or chiffonade a whole bunch of stuff and you see the raw skill that goes into it. And then you see in the individual expressions of the, of the contestants where those two tracks come together of here are the skills that I have combining with here's the person who I am and who I want to be and how I want to express myself, you know, and, and it, it's kind of inspiring and beautiful and sometimes funny and weird and catastrophic, but it's always very uh, human and not petty. You know, it really is ultimately about what they're expressing and, and, and the judges and the people who come on are very respectful of that. I actually, I mean, I've been enjoying it. I'm so happy the show is back in my life. I'm so happy that some of the truly the very, very best who have participated in recent years are, are back. And those are people like Melissa and Gregory and Eric, uh, who are my favorites. Um, so let me ask you something, because as yeah. I, I've only obviously ever watched literally three yeah. episodes of this show, and it's the first three episodes this season. Yeah. How do you determine who your favorites are outside of personality? So, well, so I, I would say personality helps a lot, but also point of view. You know, the way that people cook, the way they approach food, the way they surprise you with what they're going to do and how they adapt to it. Eric, who's uh, from D.C., was on the last season and was a standout. He made it to the final three. No one on the show has ever cooked from an African perspective before and brought mm -hmm. ingredients, flavor profiles, um, cooking techniques, history and culture in that way, which makes him already fascinating and such an incredible ambassador for something that that the show has been lacking. And I think people's imaginations and palettes have been lacking too. So that's one of the reasons why it locks in. Other people like Gregory, clearly one of the most, and Melissa actually, both of them, two of the most skilled technically ever to be on the show, but ran up against people who were more either competitive or polished or more sure of themselves. So you do get that, you know, we were talking about Bourdain and people, you get to see that growth as it develops. My issue with this season, 
uh, which I did not expect to say because I've been advocating for an all-star season. I thought it was overdue. The last all-star season was one of the very best they ever did. I wish this wasn't an all-star season. And <laughs> one of the reasons I wish that is because this show has been around for so long now, for so many generations of cooks and chefs, that the last season, the Charleston season, which was exceptional, proved there is a whole new generation of talent ready to come on the show. There was a couple, there were a couple years in the middle where it felt like the people who were ripe to go early went. And then everyone now knew what this was. And either major league chefs weren't letting their number twos take six weeks off, 10 weeks off, whatever it was to do the show, or people are coming onto it for potentially the wrong reasons. Um, shouts to Jacoby and Juliet. <laughs> Enough time has passed now where there's just a different generation of cooks who are approaching it differently and have a different sense of themselves and the industry. And I was ready to fall in love with new people and new points of view. And I'm actually kind of, and I can't believe I'm saying this, I mean, no disrespect to them. I'm kind of ready to turn the page on people who I've enjoyed for years. And yeah. specifically like like Leanne Wong, who seems like a wonderful person, and I wish her nothing but success in her professional and personal life, has been coming back to the show since season one. Um, Brian Malarkey since season three. Jen Carroll, Philly girl, whom I love and was one of my all-time, all-time favorites, you know, was on their short-lived like Top Chef Careers reality show. And I'm like, I, I think it's, time to let other people shine. You know, there's just such a marked divide between the people who have quote unquote played the game, both on camera and off. And those who from the last four or five years were just like, okay, now I get it. I'm really ready to take off. And they've done this before. Last few seasons have been like mostly new people, but then maybe one or two returning people who okay. have come back and just savaged others like Brooke Williamson, who won a few years ago after being the runner Oh, so she comes on and she that. just vaporizes people because she just knows how to do stuff in the, in the top she, chef she, way. It was kind of an, it was one of the more incredible runs in recent Top Chef history. She was one of the best contestants a couple of years ago. The finale, the worst finale they ever did. I wrote about it at length on Grantland. Tom Colicchio tweeted at me, "You're right." One of the great moments of my career. <laughs> um, she lost to Kristen Kish, who was also phenomenal, and then she came back. You know, with like a little something to prove, a little nervous, along with two other returnees who were dropped into the mix, like in a very what I imagine like that's a more reality show move. Some savvy mm -hmm. veterans are suddenly there. And then she was a buzzsaw because she was so good and knew so much. And so anyway, that's my sort of old head take on this season. So it's interesting because like I like Survivor this season so much because of the exact reasons why you're saying Top Chef is a little bit below for you because it's kind of, this is winners at war. So everybody who's playing on Survivor this year is one Survivor before. Wow. Um, and in Sandra's case, she's won twice. And the level of gameplay is so high and they've stripped out all the f excess fat of survivor there's no mm -hmm. like three or four episodes of getting to know you there's no two or three episodes of people making really really stupid rookie mistakes pretty much every episode has been something i haven't seen before or at least they're doing something that's been in every survivor season but they're doing it at a level that i've never i've never watched before so i've actually really enjoyed that uh because it it gets rid of a lot of like the kind of more TV aspects of the competition. But I guess I could see if I'd been watching Top Chef for 17 years and a lot of these faces have been coming through, I'd be like, I'm fine seeing other people do it. Yeah, I think your point though is very well made and well taken. I think that what I wish they could have done then was fashioned, and, and I think I kind of respect that they don't welcome winners back, but I wish they could have fashioned a season, maybe not called it All-Stars, but just brought back a season of killers. Basically like the runners up. Oh yeah, uh, the ones who are 
from the last five or six years. You know what I mean? The ones who, whose knife, whose knives are super sharp, um, and who are really ready to go. Who, okay. So it's, it's less like people who I just don't think have the, the quan, you know what I mean? Like we've either seen them or they're just not, they're, they're not hungry enough anymore. Or maybe they're just not ready to, to play in the same way. Um, who are there maybe to, to kind of, because they're fan favorites, you know, or they, or they think they're ready to do it, but they're not. This season is going to contract. Obviously they all do. And I do think the last like six to eight episodes of the season are going to be amazing uh, with, uh, with the people that they have there. I can't leave. I've been given this a lot of thought. Uh, this week as we anticipate the ep- by the time people hear this ep- episode of the pod they'll probably be able to watch Top Chef tonight but I have been thinking all week about what my Top Chef persona would be if I was a uh, oh yeah, yeah. you want to hear it it's I'd love basically to hear it. um physically and like you know presentation wise real eastern promises so like <laughs> big big wolf tat on the chest yeah. maybe a teardrop uh just mm-hmm. to let people know how I get down and then my food would just be all Flavor Town stuff. So just like jalapeno cream cheese injected into everything. And just like, every, I just feel like I would always intimidate people so that I wouldn't have to do the things I don't know how to do. Would you bring one of those like flavor injecting syringes that they sell on TV later? Yeah, night but I wouldn't be using it for flavor home? injection, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> there it is. There's the Eastern yeah. promise that I know you can keep. Um, okay, so we're going to get into our interviews that we have this week. I, I got to say, there was one moment during the Laura Lynn interview where I asked her if she had watched this season of Ozark yet. And she talked about how she has been homeschooling her kindergarten age son. So she's just real tired and hasn't had the time yet. <laughs> I've never felt closer to Laura Linney in my life. And, and I'm saying that as someone who, you know, as you know, Chris, I was hoping yes. you'd ask about it. We, we studied with the same acting professor. In, uh, I chose. in college. And it's shocking that we didn't end up in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have our interview with Josh Phelps from World Central Kitchen and my interview with Laura Linney from Ozark. When Andy and I are back on Monday, I think you'd safe to assume that we will cover Devs, the penultimate episode of Devs, which is actually up now. And let's also hit Run, the Vicky yep. Jones show on HBO, pr- executive produced by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And that stars Donald Gleason and Merritt Weaver, who are too big. Uh, watch people and for us, for, not for them. They, they don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> just to tee up this Josh Phelps interview, uh, it was really cool to, to just get a different perspective on our current situation in the world. Josh is someone who probably has a lot in common with a lot of other listeners, honestly, although he got to play basketball with Alan Iverson, but is, you know, out there doing incredible work for many communities in this country right now. It's a really worthy cause. Chris and I support it. I hope other people support it too. But if anything, you know, what what I took out of listening to just talking to Josh was just like, you don't have to feel completely powerless, even though we're sitting in our homes right now. So hopefully we'll do some more interviews like this over the next few weeks. Yeah. Um, and Josh mentions people. a couple of times where you can donate to the World Central Kitchen. So we really encourage you, if you're able to, that would be great. And otherwise, stay safe, stay inside, be well, and uh, enjoy these interviews. We'll see you on Monday. Later, man. Chris and I are so excited to be joined on the line, on the Zoom line, uh, by Josh Phelps, who is the Relief Operations Manager for World Central Kitchen. Josh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Josh, how does it feel to be so much more profoundly important than a group of podcasters? Oh, stop. (laughs) Uh, Look, you know, we were talking about, I know we were tweeting about, you know, how we intake of pop culture. And honestly, podcasts are, are what 
at least for me, what I take in a lot more than, than um, you know, visual media while we're out on missions. So thank you. Well, we appreciate that. Chris's head is already exploding because he talked to Laura Lee this week. So we should we should cut that off there. I think I wanted to start, Josh. I mean, I, we want to hear more about you and what you're doing, um, what you do in general, and specifically what you're doing now during this critical time in our country. But for people who aren't familiar with the incredible organization that Chef Jose Andres began, I believe, 10 years ago now, could you tell our listeners a little bit about World Central Kitchen? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, it started about 10 years ago after the earthquake in Haiti. Um, and Jose went down there and wanted to, you know, help not just by cooking for people, but then by leaving uh, lasting impressions. So he started a, you know, culinary program, which is still going today. So chefs go through that uh, at Cold as Chefs, and then they you know move on into culinary careers, you know, all over the world. And that was ongoing, you know, for seven, eight years. And then you know, in 2017, during Hurricanes Harvey and Maria, um, he started to respond to disaster relief in a, in a more sort of, you know, actionable way. Like he went to Houston during Harvey and then he saw what was happening in Puerto Rico. People were eating MREs, you know, from kids up to, you know, old men and women. So he said that, you know, there's food there. Let's go. And he just went and uh, he knew there was food on the shelves. He knew chefs. So he just mobilized and started to cook you know, on these huge paella pans that can feed, you know, everyone you turn over can feed like 400 people. At one point, I think they did 150,000 meals a day using the uh, stadium there, the arena. And I think ended up doing about 4 million meals over the months that we were there. And then just sort of ever since then, you know, he likes to, I always butcher the quote, uh, wherever there's a fight so hungry people may eat, we are there uh, from, I believe, the Grapes of Wrath. But, you know, we've sort of taken on that, credo and and whenever there is a disaster especially domestically but you know we've been all over the world southeast asia we were just in japan responding to the quarantine ship in yokohama um hurricane dorian where we're still active in the bahamas um and then you know all the wildfires in california and then um you know hurricanes in the u.s floods stuff like that so currently extremely active for the covid response in about 80 plus cities in the U.S. and then also still going and do a lot of humanitarian crisis work now. So we're in the borders of Brownsville and Matamoros in Tijuana, in Cucuta, Colombia, where Venezuelans are crossing every day due to the conditions there. And then also um, maybe five to seven cities up and feeding first responders and more in Spain, where Jose's from. So quite, um, this is completely different than what we do, but we adapt. So I guess in some ways it's the same. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are some of the, I mean, obviously this is just such a unique experience for so many people. What's different about how you guys are working during COVID versus in a hurricane response or something like that? Yeah. So in a hurricane response, it's usually like a fairly isolated area. All the systems there are offline, but you know, we can bring in, um, field kitchen equipment. We can find a kitchen that is still usable and set that up. And, you know, the damage happened and then every day it's sort of getting incrementally better. Um, For this, you know, one, it's everywhere, right? I mean, there's no, uh, there's no place in the U.S. where this isn't affecting. Um, It doesn't make sense to spin up a large kitchen and bring a lot of people together just because of the obvious safety concerns and, and people who, you know, are told mostly to socially Uh, distance and isolate. But so what we're doing is, you know, people still need to eat, though. And one of the things that um, Jose had an op-ed the other day in the New York Times is that, you know, the restaurant industry contributes, you know, 
20 employs 20 times more people than like an airline industry and contributes four times to the economy. But that's all you ever hear about in the bailouts, right? It's like airlines and other industries. And of course they deserve to get help also, but like there are restaurants ready to work. Um, they know how to, to, especially in terms of health, you know, if a restaurant doesn't, you know, follow certain health rules then they usually won't be in business. So they're sort of perfectly well placed to react to something like this. Um, albeit with, you know, a little bit more extra care with the masks and the gloves and the social distancing. So we are just sort of employing local restaurants uh, nationally when we can. And then when we hit these large numbers, we're working with a group um, called Revolution Foods that can does healthy meals for kids. And obviously they have a lot of capacity right now. And so there's, you know, we're doing probably 100,000 extra meals a week for LA United School District. 60,000 in Oakland working with um, the Eat, Learn, Play, which is Steph and Aisha Curry's foundation. We never you know, say no. If somebody reaches out to us for help, we try and figure out a way, whether that's to be there, give advice on logistics, or you know, support you know, the restaurants in those areas. So here, we're kind of in the office in DC, 18, 20 hours a day, sort of trying to manage the response from afar, but you know, do the most with the, with the minimum, I guess. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing the maximum, which is so admirable and so incredible. And, you know, I know I am. I know many people are incredibly grateful for the work you do. I said at the beginning, your title, Relief Operations Manager. It sounds like there are a lot of relief operations right now. What are you, how are you managing? I mean, literally, what is your job right now? And how are you? I guess the second part of the question is, what is your background? Is it from, is it cooking? Is it managing? Is it what? That what, what allows you at this moment to be as flexible as both the circumstance and Jose Andres require? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, there is a lot going on. And a lot of it is just, you know, having, having the right people who want to work with you and being able to delegate, which is, you know, a skill I've had to learn a lot a lot more in the last couple of months, but just over the last couple of years too. I mean, I, I had a medical research background, you know, was managing projects, data for pre-clinical drugs, right? Like drug, like oncology drugs that weren't on the market yet. And then I had some ties to Puerto Rico and some ties to Guatemala. So I volunteered a few times and then I just kind of stuck around. I was able to work remote. And then, you know, World Central Kitchen had like three or four people and now we're up to 40 in the last couple of years. And so Basically, um, people come to volunteer and then we don't let them leave <laughs> and bring them on first as contractors. And then, you know, the people who are great have started to come on full time. And, and that's happened in the last few weeks. We've, we've pulled the trigger with some amazing people that were like, look, you know what, this is the time. And now they're here, you know, whether working remotely or some people in the office with us. We're not like a volunteer, I wouldn't say reliant organization, but we love working with them. And in the end, if people are great, as, as we grow, we're able to bring those on. And, and that's how I can get my job done. So I can kind of, you know, a few of us are in the office sort of triaging just thousands of emails every day, phone calls, you know, Zoom, Zoom calls 12 hours a day. And then, you know, working uh, with our teams across the nation to sort of um, delegate and, you know, sign up restaurants, sign up agencies, talking to every mayor, you know, in every large city in the U.S. and things like that. So it's crazy. It's it's very new. I'm not, it's not like something I would say I've been used to. <laughs> I kind of want you to do mayor power rankings for us. But what I, re- <laughs> what, what I really want to ask is, you know, I think that right now, all of our listeners and, and really everybody, they want to help. 
like everybody I know is like, I, I really just feel like a, a kind of pang inside that I want to do more. What can people do to help World Central Kitchen? Is it is it donations? Is there volunteer opportunities? Yeah, I mean, donations are always amazing. And, and for us, uh, donations, 100% of them go right back into the meals. You know, none of it goes into our overhead. Like that's covered separately. So anything anyone donates... And if they want, I mean, one thing too is like if somebody donates and says, I want this to be for LA, then like legally we have to spend it in LA. So you can really sort of, um, you know, hyper localize your support if you want to do it that way. You know, in, in DC, there actually are a few volunteer opportunities. So, you know, Jose wanted to have a stadium um, in case things got worse here. So now we have a stadium. We're cooking at Nats Park <laughs> um, and that allows uh, chefs to... I guess cook safely and socially distant. It's it's pretty amazing though. They've been great. Um, we've been we're in talks with arenas and stadiums all over, including in LA. Um, just as contingency plan, you know, hope you don't have to use it, but it does allow for that sort of space and in, in a large operation if you have to spin up to like fifty thousand meals a day. So um, that's pretty cool. I, I did go to the walkthrough, but like I haven't been down there yet. We're so it's so our office is right at like 14th and U near the 9:30 club. And like literally just like back and forth every day from there. So there's something kind of incredible about the, the work that you guys do. And also particularly this moment where obviously for millions of people around the world or people in our own country who are food insecure at other times, you know, being mm -hmm. fed is the most basic and the most appreciated thing that you can give. But at this moment, food and hospitality and restaurants and cooking have taken on such an intense central focus on people's lives, whether it's like people on Instagram learning how to bake sourdough, which I have a lot of opinions about, or, you know, more, 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 not all, not all of them good, but, or, you know, or more profoundly, just like the role that, that restaurants play in our lives. Because I think people who are comfortable and fortunate enough to be able to go to restaurants a lot and go out, eat out, you know, it's like a nice thing to do. But I'm, I'm, I think people are realizing that at their heart, restaurateurs and cooks are, are givers, right? And caregivers. And yep. it matters so much to them. And so I've been so blown away to see how many people whose livelihoods have just been blown out of the water. You know, they may never be able to reopen or be able to hire people back, are insisting on staying open to feed and provide or pivot. You know, we're seeing four-star restaurants in New York pivot to being relief kitchens. And it's just a, it's just a powerful illustration of something that clearly Jose Andres has always known and built this organization to um, embody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. You know, we he realized that like when we first like when this mission first started. Of course, our what we want to do is feed the most people possible. But then, you know, it, it sort of pivoted from not just oh let's let's feed everybody. Do like we can't. We know we can't do it ourselves, and who we can do it with is the restaurant community, and they're also one of those communities in need. And like you said, like we have in DC, um, you're working on a pilot with Uber for delivery, taking out you know all of their costs. So there's no thirty percent. That was another thing. People want to pivot to takeout, but then the delivery services take a huge chunk of that. So. We're working, and I think it got announced yesterday, or maybe it's today, but like all of the delivery services, um, we're working on a partnership with them so that restaurants who come on board to work with us will have no delivery fees. So then they get to keep, you know, 100% of that. We're finding the need, whether it be the hospital, the senior home, and then we're working with the restaurant to fill those orders. And yeah, it's like Michelin star restaurants have pivoted to takeout and they're yeah. you know, getting the food out. But it's not just that, you know, we're working with, in, you know, PG County, Maryland, working with the local Peruvian chicken place to feed people out there. So, you know, it runs the gamut and it really does bring into focus like how much 
that industry means to to the world. You know, we're on the phone with you know chefs in Spain today. Just a, a chef in Montreal, people in London. Um, in that industry, like you said, it's it's there's certain folks who may not be able to make it back, but we're trying to you know at least whoever the most people we can help pull pull back from that brink. We want to, and and that's the only way that all that this is going to work too. I mean, there's so many people in need; they can't leave their house. Grocery stores closed. Like the, the largest grocery store down 14th Street here in DC, someone you know supposedly got sick, and then that store's done. You know, that's it. So you know, the the options are are not on the table so much. So yeah, it's really important. Um, I probably should have said earlier too that I'll get in trouble that to donate it's wck.org slash donate when you tee that up for me. So let me get that in there. We'll say it at the beginning too. Yeah, we could also, we could have it in the tweet for the show itself. Awesome. And I, you know, obviously the focus was talking about um, your present work, but you let something slip in the email that you sent me after I reached out, which is that you are clearly like blood family of this podcast because you alluded to <laughs> early days engaging on some level with, the patron saint of this podcast, Alan Iverson, and potentially the other saints of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Newport News, Virginia. Holy which, crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so he played in my district. Um, I didn't ever play against him, like, I guess, officially because of his, you know, the BS legal problems that he had that are well documented in the, in some of those documentaries. And you know, obviously went on to, to play at Georgetown and, and, and then for the Sixers. Who and, and, and then at that, that time too, I mean, also that was when like the Clips and Pharrell were, were coming up. And he's actually been great. He's a friend of Jose's Pharrell. So um, I'm, you know, I was talking to people in the office about how, you know, the, the Clips song in Virginia where there isn't anything to do but cook would be so great. But unfortunately, it may, he's not go. talking about uh, paella. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and Pusha T opened a ramen place in DC like a week or two ago or a month or two ago too, so super random. That's so great to hear. Well, listen, Josh, we cannot thank you enough for the work that you're doing and for coming on and telling our listeners about it. Um, tell people again the place to go to donate or to get involved. They can go to uh, wck.org slash donate. And because you were so kind uh, and said that you were listening to us during some of these stressful moments, is there a hot take or that you want to attack or defend or something that you would yeah, like us seriously. to cover do, going do, forward? Yeah, seriously. Do you want to give us like a, a devs review? <laughs> or, 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 or just be ombudsman. Is there something we got wrong that we need to revisit? Because the floor is yours. Well, so I will say uh, over the last three weeks, I've come home and I've tried to watch devs and also Westworld. And I just realized it's too late and I'm not getting it. So then I watch 15 minutes of, of an episode of Tiger King and fall asleep. So I'm still not even... <laughs> But that's about, that's the, uh, my pop culture intake right now for the last three weeks. It's kind of sad. What I'm hearing there from Josh is that he also doesn't like AI. So I feel that's like right. he's on the, he's on the right side of history. That's, what that's I right. <laughs> Josh, thank you so much. Please stay in touch. Let us know. Keep letting us know what people can do to help and what you guys are up to. And we'll keep letting our listeners know. And we're so grateful for all the work you guys are doing. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Honor. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Josh Phelps from the World Central Kitchen. If you're interested in contributing to World Central Kitchen, you can go again to wck.org slash donate. And any, anything you can do would be greatly appreciated by the Watch Pod, but also by humanity in general. Let's get into my interview with Laura Linney. But first, a word from our sponsor. 
Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Quibi. We all love escaping reality, and right now we all need it more than ever. Good thing there's an incredible new way to escape and to be entertained, Quibi. It's a new premium streaming service designed for your phone with movie quality shows and episodes in 10 minutes or less. Quibi's got new episodes of fresh original shows releasing every day. We're talking about shows with the biggest names in entertainment. That includes Christoph Waltz and Liam Hemsworth in Most Dangerous Game. Sophie Turner braves the great unknown and a dangerous environment with a stranger in Survive. And a small suburban town grapples with an explosive murder in When the Streetlights Go On. Quibi has it all from the comfort of your phone. Download the Quibi app now to enjoy a 90-day free trial. Okay, guys, the hits keep on coming. I am so excited to present my interview with Ozark's Laura Linney. Uh, Laura Linney is one of the great actors alive. She has been around for the last, I mean, pretty much the last 30 years since the early 90s when she kind of started showing up in movies like Primal Fear. Uh, she is an accomplished stage actress. She is an accomplished film actress. She's won Emmys. She was in The Big C. She was in Tales from the City. And right now she is giving one of the performances of the year in Ozark. Ozark is a show that obviously I have been very, very passionate about since it came out. But it's not an understatement to say that the show took the leap this year. This season three of the show is... is probably its best season and it's definitely the most searing portrait of the Wendy Bird character that Laura Linney portrays. I was so appreciative of Laura for taking some time out from her day to talk to us and talk to the watch listeners a little bit about at the show this year. There are some spoilers in there so if you haven't finished season three I would recommend doing so before you heard the Laura Linney interview but there's a lot of really cool stuff in there in any case. Thanks so much for listening to the pod. Here's my interview with Laura Linney from Ozark. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today on The Watch. I finished Ozark season three a couple of days ago, and I'm still kind of reeling from it. I thought it was just an incredible piece of work. So congratulations on that, first of all. Well, thank you. A lot of, a lot of people worked very hard. I watched, um, I've been doing research for our chat. I saw you from a little while ago, and you, it was an appearance you made on Watch What Happens Live, the Bravo show. Yeah. And uh, you get asked a question about the season, the third season. And you are like visibly beaming about the scripts. It's like right when you guys must have just started doing production and you must have just started getting the scripts. What was it about those initial readings of the scripts or maybe those first days of production that gave you so much confidence about it? Because you said like, you know, usually I'm not so bullish before we're done something. I I like to kind of keep it a little bit more reserved, but you seem very confident, very excited about this third season from a while ago. I think when you have the privilege to build on something that's been that has such a good foundation. You know, the first two seasons were so well done in and of themselves. And then it just felt like the third season with everybody knowing each other as well as they do and a a cast and a crew that is comfortable and skilled and really enjoy being together that, that all of us, and especially our writers, Mm -hmm. were really able to sort of um, jump into a whole other sort of experience together. And it was just, fulfilling. It was very hard work. We had a tremendous amount of fun doing it. And uh, I just had a sense that it could be very good. Yeah. I mean, it's it's cool because the Ozark almost reminds me of shows from maybe the earlier in the 2000s where they did find its footing in the third season. Not even find its footing, but like you would have a third or fourth season that just seemed to go up another level. It, it Often now, I feel like everything is so compressed in that first season. Yes. And, you know, it's not instant pudding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not, 
you know, it, it takes time for people to get to know each other and to dig in a little deeper and trust each other. And so it's the, you know, it's, it's the joy of what time does to a, a group of people who work well together. You know, time only makes it better. So the more you get to do it, the more you're around each other, the more you work with each other and for each other, then hopefully, hopefully good things happen. Wendy has such an incredible arc this season. In a lot of ways, I think it's a season that's about Wendy. I was wondering, because you're obviously such an experienced actor who's worked in all these different uh, mediums and, and stage and, and film and TV before, how much awareness do you have as you're shooting about the overall arc of, of Wendy on a season, especially for specifically this season? Because I was curious about whether or not you're working backwards from an emotional endpoint or whether or not you're finding things oh, okay, episode four, I do this, episode five. I know you, did, you guys did some block shooting, but I was curious about how much awareness you have about the end point. Well, we didn't, I was told the basic arc, you know, plot, plot-wise, basically what would happen. And then we would get the scripts as right before we would shoot each block. So I didn't have all of the scripts at the very beginning. So which is the challenge of doing series television is you don't really know what's happening. If you have a group of people who trust you enough to tell you, that's a huge help. And Chris Mundy and his amazing team, our amazing, fantastic showrunner, Chris Mundy, and his writers, they were terrific about giving me an overall arc about what would happen. But then I sort of had to fill it in piece by piece. The last four episodes we shot as a block. So that was great because I had those four, like to the end, those last four, I, I knew everything that was going to happen, yeah. what I had to work with and what and then, you know, you plan and you have all these ideas and, and then it, hopefully it surprises you and goes in a different direction. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in doing as much work as you can possibly do and then throwing it all out the window. And if you're not surprised every day, I think that's a shame. That whole last section of, of, of the show, the four episodes, and I think Alex Sakharov directed those, yes, those four did. episodes, is that right? Yes, and they have a very different, like... I was watching, I was rewatching parts of it. There's a scene where Marty pulls into an empty parking lot to talk to Frank Sr. And it kind of almost feels like the second half of Goodfellas, the way that like the cars pull up really quick and it, the tone of the show kind of changes. But for you specifically, I was curious how much um, these very specific locations, like the Warner Mart parking lot, start yeah. to take on a character of their own and like yeah, a scene partner of their own for you after a while. You're right. And, you know, I'm not on the the location scout, so I don't know what it is until I get there. Yeah. And so there's a lot of work I can just, I don't have to do because the location will do it for me. So there, that's the sort of fun of doing this type of work is letting all of these elements come together. And then it goes to a place that you have no idea what it's going to be. Sure. I mean, basic, you sort of aim for something, but then it takes on a life of its own. And then you, you have to wait and see, and then you hand it all over to the editors and the post-production people who were so good. And they, you know, do their work, their magic, and then it can turn into something completely different. For you going into this season, how much do you think, how much of the backstory of, of Ben and Wendy's relationship kind of did you have? Cause I, I believe the brother is mentioned earlier, but not necessarily. You don't get really into he's mentioned, Ben's story. He's mentioned in season one. Yeah. Marty and Wendy are on the boat talking about Jonah. And right. they're concerned because about Jonah's behavior with the animals. And Wendy says, this could be a problem. You know, I have a brother with mental illness. Or she makes some reference to her brother and his mental illness. Yeah. And so it, it sort of, I think, stemmed from there. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your working relationship with Tom as an actor, because 
Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was really funny. I was like, he just kind of leaps off the screen in in one of those ways. <laughs> kind of honestly, you know, not unlike uh, it's I, I suppose it's an unfair comparison, but not unlike when you see like Edward Norton in Primal Fear, where you're just like, oh, who yeah. is this guy? Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and I I know he's d- done a David Fincher movie since doing Ozark, yes. but can you tell me a little bit about getting to work with him? Well, I knew Alexa Fogel, our casting director, who I've known for a very, very long time, has had her eye on Tom for many years, and I think has been waiting for the right part for him. And this came along, and she thought this would be a good combination. So I I trust Alexa completely. So I knew that he was going to be terrific. And, you know, it's it can be intimidating to walk on a show that's already established with people who have a history. And so I wanted to make sure that he was as comfortable as he could possibly be. And he's a doll. I mean, he's yeah. a complete love. And we just had a great time. It was easy and it was fun. And we worked very thoroughly together and, you know, talked things through and then just played and had a good time. And like, you know, he fit into the Ozark family effortlessly, you know, because yeah. everyone there does get along so well. And, and he just... You know, it was just a joy to have him there. And you guys have such complicated scenes. The thing that's so amazing about his character is he's, as, as he knows about himself, he's sort of the only one telling the truth. I mean, he he confronts the yes. Wendy so powerfully at the end of the season by being, you're a liar, this is crazy, yeah. like I'm the sane one. And the way that his character is used as a foil against yours is so brilliant. Yeah, well, he has all sorts of information that no one else has ever had on that show about her. Mm-hmm. You know, and the show sort of starts out with people who don't know themselves very well. You know, they think they do, but they don't. And they don't know each other very well. And as the show goes on, they learn about things about themselves that take them for surprise. And they learn things about each other that are shocking. And, and he comes on with a, with a boatload of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. You know, that he uses. And in many ways, he's a threat to her. He's a reminder to her, you know, of how duplicitous she can be and how duplicitous she's always been, you know, that her life always had a sense of dishonesty and criminality to it. I think one of my favorite, low-key, one of my favorite moments of the season is, you know, when you guys are talking in the van outside of the, outside of the Warner Mart and he kind of keeps asking you, like, how did we get here? And then you kind of, you know, say, well, you can't, you can't threaten kids. And he's like, no, how did we get here? And that line you have about when you're fighting for your life, everything else you ever done feels dull in comparison, I think could be kind of used as like an overarching theme for the entire show. I mean, there's a lot of uh, stuff with Ozark where you're kind of like, there's a suspension of disbelief, but that seems like a very key line for Wendy as a character. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there's a sense of addiction about it, certainly. Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and forgive me if you've heard this before, and I've, I've said it a bunch, but she's, she's very instinctive and she's very primal and she's reactive. You know, she reacts and deals at the same time. She doesn't think things through, yeah. Yeah. but she's shrewd. So nine times out of 10, she gets through okay, but she's reactive. She's not mature, mm-hmm. but she's a really good chameleon and she can disguise herself as someone who's really poised and together but inside she's just not you know yeah i mean it was it's when she says you know he's like you must be so tired and she says you'd think it really does speak to the sort of specificity of the character because any other 
you'd think that any other person would just, I mean, even Ruth says it about herself. She's like, I'm yeah. so tired. And your, yeah. your character is just like, kind of, this is like a sort of power source for her, like it's an a, energy you know, source. You know the red shoes? Do you know a movie yeah. called the Red Shoes? Yeah. It's a little like the red shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, the cool thing that happens this season with, with a, a bunch of the, the ways in which Wendy and Marty specifically interact with people is that, you kind of have a lot of Dr. Melfi's going on. You know, you have actually Sue. You have many scenes with Helen where you're talking about the nature of how you two are sort of moving through this world. And then you have these very cool phone calls with Navarro right. about what you want and who you're supposed to be. Yeah. In yeah. a lot of ways, like this season seems to be one, even though a lot happens, a much more reflective season. Uh, of the show almost than season two, which is very much like, can they get the licenses? Can they get the casino going? Right. Well, I think that's the joy of a third season. Yeah. There's there's room for that. Stuff has been established. So now there's room to, to sort of play around in, in all of that, to get a little more textured about character and, and psychology. And all of those characters that you're interacting with, Sue, Helen, and Navarro, they each have, you know, there's a slightly comic element to Sue for some time yeah. until she tragically uh, goes yeah. one McLaren too far. Uh, yeah. And then with Helen, it's this very kind of, you know, it's it's understated, but it's very, very like thoughtful and articulate. And then with Navarro, you're kind of, it's, it's very ominous and almost like traditional like crime film. How did you sort of calibrate who Wendy was to each of these people? Well, they each have different, they each offer different things that she wants and doesn't have. You know, and her sense of competition, you know, again, is like an instinctive primal thing that she can't resist. Yeah. You know, and she has a, an innate ability to put herself on someone's level if she feels she belongs there or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, she'll talk back to Navarro. She'll put yeah. herself out there even though, you know, without thinking. It's not like she has decided to do that. She just does it by instinct. and and. And then realizes she does it and then thinks, Jesus, you know, holy Christ, what have I done? <laughs> yes. um, you know, so she gets herself, she gets ahead of herself sometimes and that's when she gets in trouble. Do you, um, when these seasons are done, do you have a tendency, do you watch a lot of stuff while it's in post or do you wait for it? Do you watch, do you, do you watch it at all? I don't. I, I, I will watch it. Uh-huh. I haven't watched it yet. Okay. You know, just given where we are in the world with yeah. everybody being you know, at home, home and shelter, you know, I'm homeschooling a, a six-year-old. And to be honest, at the end of the day, I'm so tired. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I just can't, but I'm, I'm getting to the point where I've sort of gotten the schedule down and, and I have a lot of friends who are sick and family who are sick. Sure. So there's, there's a lot of time during the day trying to make sure that everyone is okay and trying to help as much as you can when you're not near the people you love who are not well. So to be honest, at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm exhausted, but I, I think I'm probably going to start it, you know, tonight or tomorrow. I found it oddly therapeutic. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. It's a very transporting show because all of the behavior feels relatable, even if the premise feels completely outlandish. You know what sure. I mean? Yes. Yeah. It's fable-like. You yes. Know? And there's, you know, there's a sense it's just about survival. Mm-hmm. And how do people survive in in extreme situations? What do they learn in the process? How do they change? And that's one of the brilliant things about what 
Chris and his writers have done is that every single character has an incredible opportunity for transformation. They all change and grow all the time. So with each episode, like a character is very different at the end of an episode than they were at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. You know, so there is this sense of, of growth and traveling with each of these people and to see where they go. So, and for an actor, that's, that's exciting. Yeah. And I, I would imagine even, you know, you've, you've done a lot of TV. You've obviously, you're a veteran of, you've, you've seen a lot of this stuff, even something as minor, as, as small as like how Charlotte has changed over the last three seasons. Absolutely. You could, on another show, you could have just as easily like always made Charlotte the fly in the ointment, you know, and she could have just never changed at all and never decided what she wants. And, and credit to Chris, they, they really do change people. No, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful group that he's put together and, and he leads them with incredible finesse and great modesty and a real respect and love for each of these characters and, and tries to keep the plot, you know, moving and exciting and and entertaining, but also grounded so that we can all dig, dig deep as well as, you know, moving quickly forward. I wanted to ask you quickly about the, my two favorite scenes from this season, I think are, I believe it's episode six when you and Marty really let it go yeah, in front yeah. of Sue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, also the confrontation with Ruth in the offices. And both of those scenes oh, yeah, are, yeah, yeah, yeah. are kind of perfect because it's what's great about the show, which is that it can be so dramatic and so harrowing, but mm-hmm. also have this sense of humor to it in a weird way. Did you ever break during any of those scenes or are, are those is it like a funny set when you're on when you're shooting that stuff uh it, it can it certainly can be yeah and, and it's it's a very um our crew is a huge element to our whole show you know and what they not only just what they physically and mentally do and you know actively do but also their support and their involvement in and how everyone is concentrated is really huge. Like I, I love our crew. So, so they're, they're fun and yeah. you know, so we laugh a lot and they're, and the more we know each other, the, you know, the jokes just compound upon themselves season by season. <laughs> I was so, just wondering if you could have gotten through bitch wolf for the first time without cracking up. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was a good one. That was a good, yeah, the zingers are all good. And yeah. Darlene's always good for a laugh. Yes. You know, that character shows up and, you know, come on, it's, it's just so delicious. You can hardly stand it. And, and Julia, you know, Julia's use of language in this thing is just, you know, heaven. Yeah. There's those moments, those moments especially feel like you're kind of like at a great play and you're just kind of like, you're locked in, the lights are off and you're just kind of locked in with these people on on stage. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us. Glad you're staying safe and uh, really thank you so much for what you've done on Ozark. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. 